right, so this is Alan and Leon. Welcome to episode eight of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. So today we have on my very, very good friend on Twitter, Jamie Lombardi. And so Jamie is a philosophy professor at Bergen Community College in New Jersey. That's right. And she taught philosophy at Rutgers and NYU. And she studied uh, philosophy and bioethics there. And so today we want to focus on a few topics, the first of which is going to be sexism and misogyny. So Jamie and I have like, we're huge fans of Kate Maine and her work, obviously, which I'm sure a lot of you, a lot of our listeners probably know, Down Girl. So when I first read Down Girl, for me, it's like, for us, I mean, kind of in the context of, let's say, sexism, sort of misogyny, and even racism, you Mm -hmm. know, we sort of tend to think of it as this thing that existed sort of in more ancient times, that for us, kind of in mainstream culture, or not in mainstream culture, but sort of in modern culture, essentially, that, like, these are sort of -of out-of-date concepts, and it's very hard to sort of kind of see them manifest in the world. And so what Kay Maine says is she actually redefines them and says, hey, you know what, actually, that not only are these concepts not outdated in any sort of way, but they're actually predominant, and they're as sort of predominant as they once were and as they kind of have been oh, to, wow. yeah as they have been throughout history and so the reason why we wanted to talk to jamie today is because we think jamie has a lot to offer in terms of like let's say the dialogue and in terms of the conversation on sexism and, and misogyny and so how you first let's ask how are you doing jamie uh very nervous but i'm well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of kate main's book how would you define sexism and misogyny from what she said so i'm i'm gonna use uh kate's definition herself Mm -hmm. uh, where she describes misogyny as the enforcement branch of the patriarchy or as sexism and it's a way of putting women back in their place yeah and what would sexism look like so sexism is more the ideological structure of the patriarchy that men are inherently better than women Um, And so misogyny would be a way to enforce that hierarchy in both explicit and implicit ways. Yeah. And what I really loved about the book is when she redefined it, in terms of kind of how we usually kind of, let's say, conceptualize misogyny, the idea is that it's a hatred of women. And so for her, this never really made particular sense. For number one, it's because psychologically speaking, it's very hard to prove that somebody actually has that deep hatred to sort of see that manifestation of it as an actual hatred or as a manifestation of misogyny. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, when we kind of redefine it and like as Jamie just said we reconceptualize it as the enforcement branch of a patriarchal system what it would mean is that let's say when people when women in particular when they are subservient or when they are sort of following the norms and following the rules there's really no particular reason to hate them right correct correct and I think Kate Mann makes an excellent point in her book when she draws a distinction between the way um, political women are able to get ahead Um, better when they do so through conservative politics. And she talks about, you know, the relative success of Republican female Mm -hmm. candidates related to Democratic female candidates, precisely in relation to the way that their candidacies help to uphold patriarchal structures. And so they aren't subject to the same sort of backlash because they aren't questioning and they most definitely are not threatening the underlying patriarchal structure. Yeah. And what I really liked about some of the things that she said were that essentially for, like, let's say these conservative politicians, that essentially they kind of fed them a bone, right? Or sort of threw them a bone, rather, where it's like they'll give them some form of power, but as long as that power is sort of in its place and that they don't kind of step out of line. And it's so interesting because I think in terms of Republican politics, a lot of, let's say, Republicans or conservatives, essentially, will go and say something along the lines of, well, I mean, but look at how many sort of positions of power women are in. But it's a sort of very myopic view because they don't really see the kind a bigger picture which says yes they're in those positions of power because they were granted them and that they can easily be taken away if they do step out of line 
Right, I, I think that's correct. I think very often um, what gets missed about you know the desire for a more feminist politics is that the idea isn't just to put women in position of power. The idea is to change the way power is leveraged. Mm -hmm. And so what, what makes much of our politics anti-feminist is the way that it affects women, mm -hmm. right? And so if you merely change out your leaders and you put a woman in a position to advocate the same sorts of laws, as we saw with the passage of some of these anti-abortion legislation that continues to harm women, it's not made more feminist because the harm being done to women is being done by women. Yeah. And so what are your perceptions of the, the recent abortion laws, especially in particular in the South? Um, so, you know, I don't know that you can really separate the abortion laws that are being passed in the South from the larger context of the political movement mm -hmm. that we're living in right now. Um, I don't think the abortion laws make sense absent you know, this resurgent in racism, for example, mm -hmm. um, and what seems to me to be, you know, the the rising again of fascism. Yep. Um, these things seem to me to be interconnected mm -hmm. um, and leading to one another in a lot of different ways. And how so? Did I lose you? Yeah. Do you hear us, Jamie? Oh, technical. Oh, hi, uh... Are you guys there? Yeah. Hey, Jamie, can you hear us? Right, there, you're back. Do you hear us? Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. Sure. That's okay. Technical difficulties. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, we're good. Okay. So I was going to ask, so in terms <laughs> of the connections, what would you say they are between, let's say, misogyny and the sort of political climate and fascism or the rise of it? So I think these things are connected. Fascist movements historically have been pro-natal yep. um, and they've been focused on ideas of entrenched hierarchies mm -hmm. um, in which men were not only on top, uh, but traditional masculinity or ideas of traditional masculinity were a way to harken back to some sort of, you know, longed for nostalgic past. Yeah. And I think these anti-abortion laws are a culmination of all of these forces. Um, that they're taking place in the South, I don't think is a mistake for, you know, a number of different reasons. Um, but most notably, you know, the immigration crisis that's happening on our southern border. Um, this is being used to fuel racism. It's being used to fuel xenophobia. Um, in fact, researchers have said that some of these anti-abortion marches or some of these um, alt-right marches um, are some of the greatest recruiting grounds mm -hmm. um, for white supremacist movements. And I think these these laws sort of coincide with these racist and xenophobic ideas that immigration um, is going to lead to a great white genocide. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of policing primarily brown and black bodies because they tend to be most heavily impacted by these laws yeah. and as a warning sign um, to other women for what's at stake if they don't get in line and support these traditional gender roles. Um, I don't think it's an accident um, that these laws are not only going after abortion, but many of them are also attacking certain forms of contraception, which are very much not abortion. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are some of the cruelest aspects of these laws? <sighs> I would say their disproportionate impact on women who are already vulnerable and marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
as Elizabeth Warren recently said, you know, women's of means are always going to be able to get abortions. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have the resources for, you know, bus or airfare, you're going to be able to get somewhere with an abortion mm -hmm. um, where you can get an abortion. But if you work in a low paying job, you may not be able to get the multiple days off in a row that are required for some of these states that have waiting periods. Mm -hmm. You may not be able to afford the procedure itself if you miss a number of days of work in a row. And so what's most alarming to me is that these laws are going to hurt the people who are least able to absorb it. Yeah. And I mean, it's so interesting with Kate. She talks about essentially what she calls misogynoir. Well, I don't mm -hmm. that, wasn't, that wasn't necessarily her concept, but I like obviously that she interjects. Well, in, One more time. What's the concept? So it's called misogynoir. So, Jamie, well, how would you define misogynoir? So um, this is something that I don't have a lot of expertise here on. And so I'm, I'm going to sort of follow Kate's example by being very careful yeah. um, into it. Um, but misogynoir um, is the sort of misogyny that's directed at black women in particular um, and sort of or not sort of, but leverages these sexist and racist tropes about black women and so, for example, black women are often described to or referred to as hypersexualized. Yeah. Um, the way that they're portrayed in the media sort of makes caricatures of their bodies in ways that are highly sexualized. Yeah. Or there's the trope of the angry black woman um, to sort of delegitimize the anger that's experienced at both the sexism and racism that mm -hmm. they're tasked with navigating. Yeah. So there's a sort of intersection of different forms of, let's say, of oppression and different forms of cruelty where they sort of they come in together. And it's like it's it's a combination of factors that essentially kind of obviously kind of keep people and beat them down. Yeah, because that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And so mm -hmm. you see this often, too, um, and, and very often by white men where they will sort of try to reframe the discussion around abortion about how it's actually Planned Parenthood or Democrats are racist because Planned Parenthood and abortion is killing more black babies. Mm -hmm. And completely devoid from this context is why it is that black women are having abortions. Um, and also ignoring the fact that many of women generally, and black women in particular, already have children at home when they're choosing to do this. Yeah. And it's a refusal to engage with the material reality of women's lives and the policies that make lives be lived out in this way. Yeah. And Ellen, you wanted to say something? No, I mean, that should be discussed more uh, in the mainstream. That sounds like a very um, nuanced point. Um, it seems like, yeah, they're talking about how uh, Planned Parenthood is at fault, uh, the Democrats, but yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah, there are some women who already have children who are making the decision uh, to have an abortion, or also not necessarily discussing why is it that let's say in this particular case, uh, black women are having more abortions. Why is there no discussion around that? Maybe we should well, be looking at little points like that. I, to... I want to be careful. I'm not actually sure it's correct to say that black women are having more abortions. I would have to to double check that. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm learning here. Sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's fine. Yeah. Um, I just I just want to be very careful, um, yeah. especially talking about this. Like I'm already sort of bracing for like the kind of hate mail that's going to to slide into my DMs when this airs. Yeah, I mean um, it's also kind of inevitable. I mean we kind of get that too sometimes. It's just like I mean sometimes you can say something and that's just misinterpreted and that's just sort of the way it is. Yeah, so I, I don't actually think it's correct that Black women are having more abortions. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but it is certainly true. I, I'm not. I think the statistic is 60% of women who do have abortions mm. already have children. Right. Um, and so when we talk about it being, you know, this this Planned Parenthood is racist because they're actually trying to, you know, carry out the work of Black eugenics. Right. It's it's ignoring the reason why women have abortions, yeah. uh, and it's it's sort of trying to camouflage the racism inherent in some of the passage of these laws. Because if just reducing abortions was the real goal, there are more successful ways of doing this. As we've seen in Colorado, you can make birth control free and accessible, and that will cause the unplanned pregnancy rate to plummet. You can also provide material support to single moms, Mm -hmm. but that's also something that doesn't want to be done because if you embolden single moms, and you remove their need to rely on fathers to provide materially for the children, then all of a sudden you've made males seemingly irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And that's a very scary concept for the very people who are passing these laws. And so it seems quite obvious to me, at least, that the goal is not to reduce abortions, but it's to keep women in a position of dependency. And you know what's so interesting to me is on the left, and look, I, I know we talked last week a little bit about Bill Maher, and look, I really, I do like the guy, and there are sort of definitely great facets of sort of his work and his comedy, and but I think like for the most part, and I think this is erroneous, not just on kind of his part, but on sort of a lot of people on the left, is that when we frame these abortion sort of debates and discussions, right, we kind of frame them in the context of religion, and it sort of becomes, let's say, explained in such a way of like, okay, why are we using religion, right, to sort of answer these questions? When really the bigger question in this context is why is this allowed in terms of why, how does this sort of fit in the bigger context of the sort of bigger picture of misogyny? So rather than uh, framing it as a religious question, I think it's more important to frame it as a question of patriarchy. How does this sort of, how is this a manifestation of patriarchy? How does this sort of manifest male dominance? And in terms of religion or not, right, why is it that we're still doing this thing that's obviously hurting a whole sector of the population, in this case, particularly women? Yeah, so, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave Bill Maher to the side, mm-hmm. um, but personally, I find the religious argument to be largely a farce mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons. Um, one, when Roe v. Wade was first passed in 1973, the religious right didn't actually have this sort of vitriolic response to it until six years later, mm-hmm. um, and the response to Roe v. Wade that came six years later was really a political rallying tool to provide a defeat for Jimmy Carter mm-hmm. um, and to sort of form commonalities amongst people who are upset about integration in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea that anti-abortion is, is, is justified by religion just isn't actually borne out by mm-hmm. reality. Yeah. Um, the Old Testament itself includes a passage for how to cause a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as a punishment um, in terms of when it defies, li- defines life. Um, the, the absolute very earliest is at quickening, um, mm-hmm. when you can actually start to feel the fetus move. But then there's also, there's also passages where it defines the beginning of life as when the first breath is taken. Yeah. Um, so this is just not borne out in the scripture. Um, and even the evangelical movement that I mentioned earlier in the aftermath of 1973 the consensus was that this was a fairly reasonable decision um, that did the right thing in prioritizing the health and welfare of the mother. It wasn't until years later 
um, that they realize that this could be an effective political tool and means for acquiring power. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I really, mm-hmm. I actually didn't know that. Wow. So, in terms of kind of let's say the political spectrum, how do you see it affecting, let's say, the feminine or the female ca- candidates now at this point, like Kristen or Kirsten Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren? So, you know, I. I'm still so flummoxed by what happened in 2016 yeah. that I I don't even know what to anticipate for 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that you know, particularly the women candidates, will be exposed to a lot of potential gotcha moments mm-hmm. um, as it comes to abortion, given that this can be such a lightning rod issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, I've been encouraged at how strong a stance most of the Democratic candidates have taken on mm-hmm. this, um, although I would be disappointed in myself if I didn't point out that Joe Biden's history on abortion is irredeemable, mm-hmm. and it's absolutely inexcusable to me that he's now trying to position himself as someone who's been a, fro- a friend to Roe v. Wade when he once said that it went too far and that the decision to have an abortion should not be just up to women. Mm -hmm. And for our audience, can you please tell us a little bit about Joe Biden's history on abortion? So Joe Biden has tried to walk the line between being personally against abortion, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, politically sort of ambivalent about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But at every opportunity in the Senate, he's voted against the expansion of women's rights until I think it was about a week ago. He continued to support the Hyde Amendment, um, which prevents federal funds from going to any organization that provides abortion efforts. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, if the United States is giving um, relief aid to another country, um, that that money can't be given to that country if it will be in any way associated with an organization that provides abortions. And so up until I think it was a week or two ago, Joe Biden had been a staunch defender of the Hyde Amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, Additionally, he has voted. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. And so additionally, he's he's been on the record stating that, you know, this is an issue that should be given more latitude where, you know, it just shouldn't be up to just women. And he's I think. You know, he's helped perpetuate this idea that some of these anti-feminist views that sort of perpetuate under the idea that women just really can't be trusted to make their own medical decisions, that they're too emotional, they're not smart enough to understand the science. I think he's his participation in this debate has lended credibility to that. And so now we find ourselves in this moment where Brett Kavanaugh sits on the Supreme Court and, you know, is is many people expect would at least be willing to overturn Roe v. Wade if given the chance. And I think it's important to address the way that Joe Biden's willingness to lend legitimacy to these anti-scientific views about abortion contributed to where we are right now. Yeah. And I mean, it's so interesting with Biden, like at this point, he's still unwilling, unrepentant in some sort of way. Like even when you bring these things up and when it's sort of brought to his attention, he just sort of defends himself every chance that he gets, especially when it comes to this sort of handsy nature. Right. I mean, I, I, that one I don't understand. Like, I mean, how hard is it just not to touch someone unless they okay it? Like, I, I mean, he's an adult. I just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, yeah, and, and I think that gets at a lot of what Kate talks about in her book, this idea that men have of their entitlement to women's bodies. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, you know, women exist for men, 
yeah. uh, rather than for themselves. And this was most glaring to me recently when he jokingly turned to a 13-year-old child, mm-hmm. um, at, asked her her age. She said how old she was. And then he turned to her brothers and said, ooh, you're going to have to keep the guys away from her. Mm-hmm. And my head just sort of exploded because it's premised on this idea that what it is that makes women valuable is their purity, is their virginity. And if not for men to protect them, Mm -hmm. they will somehow be sullied Mm -hmm. in ways that they can't recover from. And it's just so infuriating that in the aftermath of the Me Too movement and Donald Trump being elected president, that someone can run for president completely devoid of the self-awareness that I think this moment requires. Yeah. And what's so interesting is if you kind of go into Stoic philosophy and Epictetus, the manual. Mm-hmm. So Epictetus actually talks about this within that book that was written, what, 2,000 years ago? Mm-hmm. So I don't remember the exact quote, but he said something along the lines of like in, let's say, in Greek culture, when we have, let's say, when a woman is essentially told or a girl is essentially told that her only value stems from her looks, she says something along the lines of sadly her inner gifts actually and so obviously the point there that he was making is that what they're doing or what they did do is the same thing that we're doing now they sort of objectify girls and they sort of imbued it imbued the belief at an early age that hey you are your looks and that's really the most that you have to offer and so interestingly enough Epictetus actually also adds on that in terms of like that kind of understanding of what my value is is that then they believe that our only sort of our only goal or the only sort of life meaning that we can really attain that is actually valuable is being servants or subservient to men Yeah, and so this is not dissimilar from an insight that Simone de Beauvoir makes Mm -hmm. in The Second Sex as well. Mm -hmm. And she talked about girlhood being an apprenticeship in the feminine condition, Mm -hmm. which is basically a preparation to renounce one's autonomy and submit to the expectation that to become a woman is to become for a man. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really harmful. Um, It was something that was said to me very often as a child by my own father. Um, and as, it's only as I'm approaching 40 that I'm beginning to appreciate just how damaging that kind of talk is. Yeah. I mean, would you be okay with telling us a little bit about how it affected you, those sort of expectations? So, yeah. So, um, I'm, <laughs> um, so yeah, this is not something I've ever really talked about before, but, um, as you know, when I was young, my father is what I would now call a misogynist, though I certainly didn't have the language for it. Um, one of the things that he would say to me quite often was that um, the only thing that I had of value um, existed between my two legs. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, women were to be fucked and not much else. Mm-hmm. And it was clear in the way that he communicated this that this wasn't an indictment on society, um, but an indictment on women for not realizing their proper place. Um, And he communicated frequently the way that he felt, you know, aggrieved at how women mislead men and trick them Mm -hmm. um, with their sexual wiles, um, which I realize now as an adult that I did and as a child is a terribly inappropriate thing to say to an 11 year old. And it's just this idea that women are there um, to give men comfort and pleasure when it's good for them Mm -hmm. and to sort of go away and be quiet when it's not. Um, And this had a profound impact on me. Um, I think this has 
deeply impacted um, you know, my imposter syndrome because for so long it was it was communicated to me that I couldn't be anything but pretty. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, I couldn't be intelligent because I was a girl and the particular ways that I was intelligent wasn't recognized as such. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, if I experience a rejection, for an example, if I submit a paper and it doesn't get accepted, it's very tempting. I can hear those those words in my head again, like, oh, this is what you get for trying to rise above your station and thinking you're something that you're not. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a, it, it does cause a lasting damage. Yeah. Um, I feel very fortunate, you know, that it hasn't been so damaging that I haven't, you know, been able to overcome it in some ways. But not everybody is so lucky. Yeah, and I mean, the difference and why it's so hard to, and I think we talked about it in previous shows. Mm -hmm. So just kind of to refresh my audience, well, our audience's memory. Yeah. So we talked, we talk about the difference between system one and system two thinking. So system one thinking essentially is your intuition. It's that part of you that mm -hmm. says that I feel that this thing is true. That it's this sort of intensity of feeling and sort of the mystery of, oh my God, where does this come from? That kind of sustains the belief, right? So it's like when we talk about intuition, we have... Not only, first of all, it's obviously imbued in us at an early age, but then it's sort of periodically reinforced. And then because as a culture, we sort of put intuition on a pedestal. And we're like, oh my God, it's this great mysterious thing, right? So, And it feels so strong, therefore it has to be true. It's like our deeper selves talking to us. Mm -hmm. So then, like let's say with Jamie, right, when we're talking about, let's say the system two thinking, the rational part of our brains. The rational part of our brains that say, you could, let's say Simone de Beauvoir is right, right? There's this sort of idea that, you know, we have these cultural beliefs implanted in us, but they don't really make much sense when we examine them so the problem is that even if we were try or let's say we kind of try to challenge and sort of I guess is a good term for it try to replace that system one thinking with system two thinking there's always going to be this sort of dichotomy that exists in us so even if there's this sort of let's say rational part of us that we use to manage those initial beliefs the ones that were sort of imbued in us as children I don't really know if there comes a time where we fully just don't believe them ever or we don't feel them so we could sort of manage them, right? Like, like with this dialogue, I think that's what we're doing. We're managing that sort of intuitive thinking that says that women are just servants, right? And they can't be intelligent, that their only sort of goal in life or their sort of major goal in life is to be pretty and attractive and subservient. So that part of us that's so kind of cultural or rather that part of us that's so, um, what's the word for it? It's like this part of us that came at such an early stage of development, it's very hard not to feel those beliefs. So the beauty is, and why I'm sort of going on about this, is because the feelings are not facts. And I think that that's a really important concept for us to sort of grasp. Yeah, they're socialized. Yes, yes. And so sometimes, like when I talk to people, they're like, oh, but like, you know, I'm still feeling it. And I would say, yes, absolutely. And it's okay to feel it. So you can ride the feeling. The problem is that when we actually accept it, and when we accept that feeling as a fact, what happens is it intensifies and it persists. And so, yeah, and that's, so that's why I think that this dialogue is so important because I think that a lot of people, especially hopefully girls, right, girls at a younger, kind of at a younger age, maybe even teenagers, that they can go and they can look at this conversation and say maybe some of the beliefs that I had don't really actually make any sense when we think about them and especially when we talk about them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think it's, it's part of why it's so important um, to have authors like Kate Mann talking about this, mm -hmm. to have women like Elizabeth Warren running for office. Um, because as someone who grew up female, there's this idea that to aspire to be intelligent is to sort of be too big for your britches, mm -hmm. um, to be kind of going beyond what's meant to you, where men or boys are sort of able to exist in a world where it's sort of taken for granted that they will be intelligent or that they will have things of value to say. Mm -hmm. And so it sets girls up for this 
weird sort of balance that they have to walk. Because mm -hmm. um, to be able to navigate that space is you're not just going up against the same sort of internal worries that everybody has. Like, am I really smart enough to be doing this? There's clearly people better qualified than me to talk about it. You've also got this internalized expectation that maybe this isn't really meant for you when you're doing something wrong by even trying that boys don't have to navigate. Yeah. And so just to kind of shift the conversation a little bit, just for time's yeah. sake. So I also really wanted to cover, obviously, existentialism because I am an existential <laughs> therapist. Alan loves existential philosophy. Oh, yeah. And you, Jamie, love Albert Camus. So I have to ask because I never really knew the answer to this. Where does the love of Camus stem from? So I came to Camus sort of accidentally. Mm -hmm. um, as I came to all existentialism, actually, I got through all of my coursework at Rutgers and, and NYU, and all I had to take was um, one existentialism class. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a terrible professor in it, and I, I hated existentialism sort of by default after that. Oh, wow. <laughs> but um, after, after, after the 2016 election, I did this sort of deep dive into World War II mm -hmm. and sort of what to do in the face of fascism and where did the resistance get it wrong, what did they do it right, and slowly but surely, I found my way to Camus. Mm -hmm. um, and I fell in love with him for a thousand different reasons. Um, at first, I just admired the stubborn refusal to stand up in the face of this gargantuan evil, his insistence on making a stand, even when it could cost one one's life. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I began to read more into his personal life, there was something about him that I just was able to resonate with. Um, in his personal writings, he talks often about the sense of despair that he carries with him all of the time, that he's haunted by. Um, and he talks about the way that the poverty of one's childhood can color one's existence. And it just struck me as someone who carries a lot of trauma from my own childhood at how beautiful this was. Um, and his way of dealing with this, you know, he's sort of got this reputation of being, you know, decadent and a bit of a cad. Mm -hmm. um, and that's certainly true. Mm -hmm. um, but my understanding of it is that this was this was his revolt in the face of, you know, a, a trauma and a poverty that could have left him bereft and didn't. Mm -hmm. And so I see it as this sort of rebellious joy, this idea of grasping on to as much of what makes life beautiful while you can, um, despite all of the darkness that surrounds you. Yeah. And that there's something about that that's very empowering. And so for me, Camus sort of feels like a kindred spirit, that this, by all rights, it would make sense to just sort of lie down and say, fuck it, this world is horrible. Yeah. And <laughs> there's very little any one person can do in the face of all that's wrong with it. Um, but this is the day that I have available to me. There's life to be lived. There's joy to be had. Mm -hmm. And if it's the last thing I'm going to do, I'm going to make use of it while I can. And I just adore that. Yeah. What's interesting is, uh, didn't he know Simone de Beauvoir? Yes. Yeah. yeah. They had, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a relationship. So, yeah. Jamie, actually, did you, you know this. You know this better than we do. Did, did they? So, so, there are, so I cannot find any 
first person source of this claim. Mm -hmm. um, this comes from the Todd biography of Camus, mm -hmm. where he sort of mashes together two different sentences to suggest this. He sort of asserts mm -hmm. that Simone de Beauvoir was interested in Camus, but he rejected her. And then a sentence or two later, there is a, there's a quote um, from someone else where Camus had allegedly said, how boring and dry Beauvoir would have been in bed because her pillow talk would have been about Hegel. Mm -hmm. And taken together, these are supposed to act as confirmation that indeed, yes, there was a relationship between mm -hmm. these two. Um, but so far as I've been able to find, there's no first person account, even through the letters of Beauvoir, her memoirs, or from Camus, um, that actually stayed anywhere yeah. um, that Camus and Beauvoir were romantically linked. And how do you think Camus was able to see the brighter side of life, especially since, I mean, like you said, he, he kind of saw things in the way and sort of how they were in terms of the depressing aspects of it. I wonder, like, how do, how do you think that he held on to the goodness of it? Stubbornness. Yeah. Um, Rebellion just, against mm -hmm, absurdity. Yeah, just sheer stubbornness um, and force of will and a desire to make something out of it. One thing about Camus is that he was afflicted with tuberculosis fairly mm -hmm. young. Um, and so from a very young age, he was aware of death. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, before getting into the fact that his father had died when he was just one year old. Yeah. Um, and so he had lived his whole life with this pressing fear that at any moment death was going to, to come for him. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was just a matter of just stubbornness, to be quite honest, mm -hmm. that, you know, death may be just behind him. Um, but while he could, he was going to dive into the ocean and stare up into the sun. Yeah. And so a lot of existentialists, I'm not sure if Camus was one of them, but they kind of view death as a catalyst for life, where for them, it's like, I mean, yes, it's obviously this, you know, sort of horrible, depressing thing. That's unquestionable. But the idea was there was, um, I think it was Montaigne who said, essentially, like, you have to hold death on your tongue, because if you don't, essentially, what's going to happen is you're going to live a very sort of trivial life. And so for a lot of existentialists, the idea was like, okay, how do we sort of take death and use it for, you know, kind of utilize it for a better and more fulfilling life? And I was wondering, did Camus ever view it in that way or conceptualize it like that? So I would say that's definitely right. Um, so Camus himself did not adopt the existentialist mm -hmm. label. Yeah. Um, but in, in his diaries and in his writings, he talks actually a lot about Epictetus. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the way that his illness um, helped him focus on the importance of life mm -hmm. and, and to live it. So I would very much agree that that motivated not just his, his writing, but his life as well. Yeah. Plus, um, I'm not sure if uh, he lived by this, but there was that concept of memento mori, mm -hmm. of being mindful of death. Mm -hmm. As you said, as Montaigne yeah. said, you know, uh, having death on your tongue. Yeah. I mean... I haven't read, I'll be honest with you, I've not read Camus in a while. Mm -hmm. I did read The Stranger and um, I did learn about uh, the myth of uh, Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm not mistaken, yeah, I, I believe it was the, the, because life was so absurd. Yeah. He's just like, okay, I, I don't, I, I, it's so absurd that I'm just going to act like counter to, mm -hmm. to the absurdity. Yeah. Which is very interesting. Like to me, when I first learned it back in college, mm -hmm. um, I could definitely relate. There were so many things going on that felt <laughs> absurd. People's behavior, this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, okay, uh, if you guys are going to behave like this, if life is going to be like this, mm -hmm. I'm just going to 
feel and behave how I wish and mm -hmm. make the best out of this I can, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. And so did Camus ever touch on in terms of kind of meaningfulness and what a life could look like if it were? Let's say obviously no inherent meaning, but what a life could like if one were to create their own meaning or their own purpose? Yeah, and, and so I think that's what he's trying to get at in the myth of Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he talks about Sisyphus being the absurd hero in part because of his scorn of the gods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, particularly what he's scorning is this condemnation to death and this condem condemnation to the futility mm -hmm. of, of much of what takes up our life. And so when he says the struggle to the heights is enough to fill one's soul and one must imagine Sisyphus happy, mm -hmm. I, I think what he's getting at is that the revolt itself, the, the stubborn insistence on resting whatever joy you can from this existence while you have it is the meaning, is the point. Mm -hmm. Because the futility, the futility is there. You're going to die anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and so why not, you know, put both middle fingers up at the gods and the times between and make the most of it while you can. Mm -hmm. And what's so cool is that, like, as we're talking about all of these people, I mean, you can see their relevance now from Camus to Epictetus, right, to obviously sort of these concepts of misogyny and sexism. It's so weird how history is. It's like as much as like as much as it does change, there's so many things that still remain the same. And it's like crazy how we haven't learned so many of our lessons. That. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with that more. It's sort of horrifying. I can remember being a kid learning about the Holocaust and mm -hmm. thinking, oh my God, how could they sit by and not do anything about this? How how could they let this happen? And now here we are in the United States and we're putting children in cages um, and there are concentration camps again. Mm -hmm. And here we are for the most part, not really doing anything to stop it. And I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. it. Yeah. I don't I don't, I don't understand, understand it and it's it's particularly alarming that it's being done by a party that that likes to label itself as you know the party of life but mm -hmm. what good is life if you're denied every ability to live it in a way that matters yeah. before it's taken from you well now that we're talking about this subject like what would you say is maybe something that um that maybe we could do say we're, we're interested in stopping something that's like writing letters to Congress is there somebody we should be calling because mm -hmm. you're right. That is very interesting. I don't want to be like um, from not taking any action at all complicit to yeah. um, actions like like that, like mm -hmm. watching kids be in camps and such. It's mm -hmm. it's not right. A hundred percent. Yeah. I I wish I had the answer to this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I guess writing letters is, you know, better than nothing mm -hmm. um, it at least lets elected representatives know that we're paying attention yeah. but most of these elected representatives are in gerrymandered districts where it really doesn't matter um because the demographics are such that their re-election is all but guaranteed i don't think anything less than mass organized civil disobedience will put an end to the way things are um and it's it's striking to me um, I don't know why we aren't all just lying down in the streets and refusing to, to do anything until this is addressed. Um, the, concentra the concentration camps are horrifying. Um, they are an indictment on all of us, I think, for our failure to do anything about them. 
um, because quite frankly, if we really did all lie down in the streets and refuse to go home and unblock traffic until the concentrate would have closed, mm -hmm. they would close. Um, similarly, we're facing another existential crisis with climate change. And again, we're paralyzed and we do nothing. And I don't, I don't understand it. I just don't understand the sort of indifference it requires to go about our daily lives as we are in a collision course with our own destruction. Yeah, I, mean, I don't get it. I mean, uh, kind of from a clinical standpoint, I mean, I would argue that it has to be some form of denial. Sort of not only denial that obviously the climate isn't really changing because we can't really see it outside of our window on a daily basis, but then also denial that anything is like terrible is happening to these children. I mean, for the most part, maybe if you ask somebody like, I don't know, just if you pick out a random person on the street, you would say like, hey, do you know about what's going on like with these kids at the border? A lot of times they will say well yeah i mean it sounds like from what the news tells me is that they're kind of disconnected from their parents but like eventually they're brought back right or something along those lines but i think there is a collective denial in terms of what happens not only in terms of immigration but also in terms of climate change i mean we see this even on a kind of individual level in america that people are even in denial about their own health i mean like the thing is yeah, with like going to doctors, like you name it. I mean, it's like it's so wild, man. But the thing is, a lot of times, of why a, a good reason why, not the only reason of why healthcare costs are so high here, is literally because people refuse. Sometimes, obviously, there's the kind of financial constraints too, no question about it. But a lot of times, also, people refuse to see their clinicians. They don't go in for checkups. They don't sort of, let's say, take care of their own health. And I mean, the kind of the point that I'm making here is essentially that in terms of an individual and even a collective national sort of level or on both levels that we're a lot of times in just denial and sheer denial of what's going on right in front of us sure i mean i think that's i think that's right um i think part of that um is the sheer magnitude of the problem um and the relative inability of just one person to to do anything about it um and <laughs> You know, I think that's part of what makes, you know, the breakdown in our community so troubling, right? Because in order to really address this, we're going to need solidarity. We're going to need a sense of community. We're going to need to, to resurrect that sense that we're all in this together. And it seems that's really missing right now. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the way the system is set up um, in a capitalist system that requires you to, you know, constantly, almost frenetically um, be keeping up with everybody else, lest you, you know, slip to the bottom. So much of people's energies are taken up just by like keeping their head above water. And so when people have to live their lives on this perpetual treadmill it's really hard to sort of look to the side and see someone else falling behind mm -hmm. um because if you turn your head it may be you next yeah. and so you know i think it's that's that's a big problem and i, and I don't know how to address that i wish i did yeah, and I love that perspective because it's incredibly empathic. I mean, we're kind of seeing it from the perspective of these of the people who are, in a sense, in denial. Because, I mean, it's clinically speaking, again, denial is a form or a manifestation of anxiety. And, I mean, it's interesting that because in terms of kind of how, for the most part, I mean, our daily lives are actually obviously from work, but then also from the other sort of things that are going on in the world. I mean, they're very sort of stressful. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's designed that way on purpose. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know... This is something that gets lost very often, you know, especially when, you know, self-proclaimed Democrats want to sort of make fun of, you know, self-declared Republicans, right? It's very easy to sort of dismiss them as like racist or ignorant. 
Um, but it, it fails to take into account what the lived reality is for most people. And thinking deeply about these things requires time and energy that most people simply don't have. You know, if you have to put in 8, 10, 12 hours at a job that you most likely hate for, you know, not enough money to cover all of your needs, you are cognitively drained. Mm -hmm. And to think deeply and meaningfully about the intersecting ways that these systems of, of power sort of rest on top of each other yeah. is not something that everybody can do. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's easy and it's lazy to sort of dismiss people as ignorant and racist, not that there aren't people who are. Right. Um, and to fail to understand the conditions that have put in place precisely so they will be too depleted to think meaningfully about this. Yeah, and I mean, it's, go ahead. one thing that's actually pr pretty good about podcasts in general is that for the people who, let's say, you know, most of their day is taken up by yeah. these concerns, well, uh, yeah, they could they can allow other people to have these discussions in a way for them. Of course, they can think about it, and I don't discourage that. I think you should if, if you can. Right. But that's, yeah, that's why this is useful. We, we have a conversation about this. We elucidate what what we think is going on. Mm -hmm. If somebody like Jamie on who can, right. you know, help us out with this. And, and it's good. It, it's, uh, it's one way to kind of try to remedy the situation. Another would be, let's rework out how many hours, <laughs> sorry, how many hours a day people work yeah. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But until then, we have we have things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, other other resources as well, which yeah. is which is good if anything. Mm -hmm. And I gotta, yeah, go ahead, Jamie. No, I was just, I was just gonna say that that I agree. I think there are some ways that these podcasts sort of serve to to reconstitute a public that we no longer have. Right. Um, we don't really have town centers anymore where people gather together and share ideas. Our lives are sort of pulled in a thousand different directions. We spend more time in our cars than we do with our neighbors. And there's a real breakdown in community because of this. And so I think podcasts absolutely do sort of reconstitute the public in a little bit by giving people an opportunity to share ideas with people that they maybe otherwise wouldn't encounter. Yeah. And you know what's so cool? So the thing is that, so it's like, for me, this is so wonderful how life works. So our second ever show, we covered the new book that I think came out maybe in April by David Brooks. It's called The Second Mountain. So in The Second Mountain, essentially, Brooks says exactly what you just said, Jamie. So he talks about community and how essentially the sense of community has completely eroded. And so for the most part, so he kind of let me just sort of for kind of for everybody for our audience sure. right to kind of go back to these ideas so so the way David Brooks distinguishes the two mountains is as such so he says the first mountain man is essentially sort of the ideal kind of capitalist where they sort of they kind of go about their lives in terms of finding achievement or in terms of finding meaning in achievement. So they sort of go about their lives in terms of finding success, sort of whether it's material wealth, recognition, um, let's say, you know, kind of trying to attain accolades. And the point is, it's a very individualistic way of living where for them, happiness is intertwined literally with individual pursuits and individual success. And so the second mountain man is essentially the community oriented one. And so for the second mountain man, or, and obviously there's a distinction, it, we say obviously mountain man 
man and we mean everybody right and i mean i i wish i will i think i'll call it a mountain man yeah i will call it a mountain person a mountain person so the mountain individual so i mean just david brooks uses that term so the second mountain individual essentially so for him or her the point is that like meaning is essentially found within the community and of being of good service and of useful service within the community so the success is essentially um it's kind of secondary to all of it so for david brooks he says look there's not there's nothing wrong with the first mountain and he understands that essentially that obviously individual success in itself is not a bad thing it's actually a good thing but he distinguishes between happiness and joy and so he says happiness is essentially connected to the first mountain where if you're individually sort of pursuing these different let's say goals and these different let's say activities that you're essentially achieving things that make you happy and so for him he says that happiness is actually it's uh, it's transient so it's very sort of short-lived so it's kind of like the hedonic treadmill where you essentially achieve something and then eventually you kind of get bored with it and you're like okay I have to achieve this other thing so in the second mountain and the person who's actually engaged within their community and sort of perpetually of service and perpetual sort of in perpetual need and in perpetual service that person actually experiences joy and so for David Brooks he says joy and happiness are two different things because happiness is essentially this sort of fleeting ecstasy whereas joy is literally this sense of unity within your community where you feel like you're infused and you're meaningful within the actual tribe so i've i've not read brooks um book mm-hmm. um but uh, from your description i would push back on this a little bit and i would actually suggest that he has it backwards mm-hmm. um because i don't actually think you can be a person of individual accomplishments absent your community mm-hmm. um in order to do any of the things that we consider valuable nowadays, you are dependent upon there being certain infrastructure in place. Mm-hmm. You are dependent upon there having been a receptive caregiver there yeah. while you were an infant to teach you the language, um, to teach you the social cues of how to navigate you know, interpersonal relationships that allows you to be successful in the board meeting that secures your funding, mm-hmm. to drive on literal roads Um, that you know will not open up with sinkholes. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of this is intricately dependent upon there being other people present. And so I actually think that this this idea of individual success is part of the problem because it obscures the very way our relationship to others are absolutely necessary for our ability to become whoever it is we want to be. Yeah. Wow, that's a really great assessment on Mm -hmm. that. So, but go ahead. I mean, what, what was the distinction that uh, Brooks was making, for instance, was uh, somebody who was motivated by um, egoic desires? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the desire, uh, the second mountain man, the desire to uh, offer value, be of service, and mm-hmm. uh, find and uh, attain meaning in that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah. Uh, but I, I agree, yeah, without uh, certain kinds of infrastructure, without having been. Uh, raised by um, your your uh, parents, uh, without um, other people, you couldn't have a lot of these accomplishments anyway. Right. So. Yeah. I, I, you couldn't. This idea that, like, you know, if you were just dropped, you know, on an island as an infant, you would not become the next great big innovator. You would be dead. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so it it just seems to obscure all of the human labor that goes into these individual successes that we want to see. And I don't think it's an accident, mm-hmm. um, although he probably didn't intend it, um, that most of that labor that's being obscured is traditionally done by women, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So it's traditionally your mom 
who's going to be doing the early child caregiving mm -hmm. that teaches you language, that teaches you how to no navigate social situations effectively, that teaches you the importance of, you know, reciprocity and sending a thank you note, right? It's primarily going to be women mm -hmm. um, who are your teachers, who are providing you with the information and the, the, the skills and the tools you're going to need to refigure the world in new and interesting ways after you're out of school. And so to me, it seems to sort of reinforce the very problem that is what we're trying to figure out how to deal with is that it's intentionally obscuring the fundamental connectedness that makes us who we are and its importance in our lives and that and its ability to give us meaning. Yeah. So, I mean, the main sort of, well, not the main, but I think one of the major points that I'm getting from what you're saying is that a lot of what we're missing is gratitude for not only the people, but obviously in this case, specifically the women in our lives. Yeah, I think gratitude is always a good thing to have. I think women historically have not been given credit for the work that they've done to bring society to where it is. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, I think this idea that we're that we're individualistic is just wrong. Yeah. Um, none of us would be who we are if it weren't for other people. Yeah. And these are central to us. And we've seen, right, there was a there was a, a Harvard study that followed people for like 40 years. Um, they tracked incoming Harvard freshmen over the course of their life from a variety of different economic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that the single biggest difference um, in a person's life on whether or not they ended up happier would describe their life as happy was not how much money they made, was not how much traveling they got to do, but was the quality of their relationships. Mm -hmm. People who reported having deep, loving relationships, no matter how much money they made or where they ended up in their profession, reported being happier at the end of their lives yeah. than people who made tons of money um, and you know had reached the tops of their careers who had bad relationships. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it sounds like Brooks is, is missing that fundamental component that what really makes a human life valuable or feel successful is how well it's connected to other human lives. Yeah. And so much of the way our current society is structured alienates us from each other. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. And so interestingly, so when we had Bill Irwin on our show, I think he was our first ever guest. Mm -hmm. And so Bill Irwin actually wrote the follow up to Little Siddhartha kind of for our audience. Or he wrote Little Siddhartha, the follow up to Siddhartha. And so interestingly enough, and there was something that was so obvious to me about the book that I mean, I wasn't sure like if it was his intention for it to be so. So we had a conversation about it. And so Bill essentially said that in the first book, in the original Siddhartha, so Kamala, who is actually the mother in the book, right? She doesn't really have a prominent role. Like so a little bit is said about her background right obviously she was like this courtesan but like in terms of her raising Siddhartha really very little is known about her and so what Bill actually tried to do in the second book which he obviously succeeded at and did very well was he gave little Siddhartha's mother a prominent role and so what we actually see is where you have this narcissistic father and this other sort of narcissistic grandfather you have this mother who literally kept the family together and was a like a phenomenal figure for her son like without which obviously he wouldn't have become the sweet caring kid that he was and I just I, I come and Bill for doing that and I think that that was a central part of the story the relationship between little Siddhartha and his mother yeah so I I'm gonna have to check that out yeah it's that, really good yeah. it's a really really good that book. sounds wonderful uh-huh yeah so uh, wow I can't believe we're already like up for, up for the hour time flies wow. all right so Alan do you have any final questions for Jamie before we go well yes actually um 
What would you say is your, um, and no pressure to answer this, but uh, what would you say is your idealized version of maybe like um, the relationship of either men to women in society or, or women's place in society, like an idealized version of that? What ought to be? What what should yeah what yeah yeah that's a tough one. <laughs> or what what do you what do you think is like a good um, uh, way or a good thing to strive for as far as that goes? Um, so one thing that I think is really important is that first we have to get rid of the binary, mm-hmm. and we have to stop thinking of men and women in terms of this strict dichotomy where they are necessarily sort of opposed to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my ideal society would see us um, more as, as equal members of a community mm-hmm. um, where we were able to more freely be ourselves um, in ways that were removed from some of these traditional sexist, heteronormative sort of gender roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be freeing um, for men, women, non-binary people, genderqueer people mm-hmm. in ways that would be really beneficial and healing. Um, I think one of the first ways to do that um, is that we're going to have to seriously address the fact that we don't have a meaningful ethic of sex mm-hmm. that treats all participants as equal participants in the activity. We still um, have ideas about sex that are so heavily loaded with heteronormative shame bearing bullshit Mm. um and excuse my language but um i think until we unpack that and get at an idea of sex that allows people of all varieties to enjoy it for what it is Mm -hmm. um we're going to be behind the eight ball so i think that's that's a pretty big priority and my ideal my ideal world for people would be one where that is centered yeah that's Mm -hmm. really awesome Mm -hmm. yeah i agree so and jamie do you have any final thoughts for our audience um, everybody should read Camus and um, <laughs> <laughs> and Simone de Beauvoir. And Simone de Beauvoir, yeah. yes. Um, I've just actually just finished. Um, I got an advanced copy of Kate Kirkpatrick's new Beauvoir biography. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. Um, and it's coming out in August, and I I highly recommend everyone read that as well. Um, especially if you're interested in any of the conversations that we talked about today. Yeah. Um, because it really gets into details about the way the way that we're situated in our world and the expectations that come with that shape who we are, shape how we understand ourselves, shape how we present ourselves and the impact that has on the relationship. So go on to further mold us. Um, and it really is great. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and uh, Jamie, uh, if we wanted to follow you on social media, uh, where would we find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter. I have, I was very fortunate to snag the, um, the user, <laughs> you the fro over yeah. there. Um, so you, you can find me on Twitter. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, and then, by the way, everybody, Jamie's Twitter is phenomenal. So one of my, <laughs> by far, one of my favorite like uh, pro- profiles is a profile. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, profile. I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm glad you enjoy my carefully curated brand of you know <laughs> philosophy and and nonsense. Oh no, so the, the, yeah. So there are like a few Twitter handles that I go on like specifically to look at, and yours is definitely one of them. Thank you. All right, Jamie, and thank you so, so much for coming on. This was such a great conversation. Thank you guys so much. All right. And for our audience, (laughs) should we say goodbye? And goodbye, everyone. Thanks for watching episode eight. (laughs) Thank you. Bye.